Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. At the Architectural Review, articles that debate architecture and its social conscience are amongst our most popular articles immediately. There seems to be a desire amongst architects for their work to be socially relevant and there seems to be a feeling that something was lost when modernist values failed or went out of fashion and that architects, when they lost authority and with it agency, lost the ability to make a lasting and real change. Architects are already responsible for the safety of a building. They can be found negligent should it collapse due to poor design. But some of the questions we're debating here tonight include, you know, if you design a luxury housing that pushes uh, social housing aside, are you then somehow complicit in the act taking place? Or if you push that to its extreme, if you are complicit in the design of an illegal structure, a prison, an interrogation, a torture chamber, are you suddenly in trouble? Is it okay if the laws of the country in which you are working allow this? Or does it matter whether it fits with the laws of your own nation? In tonight's debate, the ambition is to talk about ethical practice as well, the ethical responsibility of the architect. Should we have some sort of code of ethics, something to which architects should be held to account and struck off if they violate it? And it's my great pleasure to introduce first to kick us off Jonathan Meads, writer, journalist and broadcaster. I wrote somewhere that the words ethics and architecture shouldn't inhabit the same sentence, and I absolutely stand by that. Ethics applies to two groups, two disparate groups of people. The first is criminals. Jean-Pierre Melville and Martin Scorsese have made a great contribution to our understanding of ethics by investigating the nuances of the milieu in France and the good guys or les beaux mecs, the good fellas in New York. I have no doubt that graduates of the Strauss-Kahn Academy of proxenetism have a very good grasp of the ethical behaviour that they require. There's nothing good about ethics. It's rather like sincerity. It depends what you're being sincere about. Tyrants are sincere about genocide. Disc jockeys are sincere. The other group that is contaminated by ethics are the ancient professions, medicine and the law. But frankly, if I was having my um, brain operated on, I'd sooner have a morally corrupt person who was extremely dexterous than someone who was um, a beacon of probity and maladroit. We never hear about ethical novelists or ethical dancers, ethical photographers, but we do hear an awful lot about ethical architects. And the, the reason for this it goes back 125, 130 years now to the debate in the 1880s about whether architecture was a profession or an art. And the big names of the day, Shaw, Webb, the by then ancient Butterfield, Anglo-Jackson, were for architecture being regarded as an art. But for every big name, there are thousands of small names. And the thousands of small names knew they were never going to make it. They were never going to be famous as Edward Pryor, say. But they would get a bit of kudos if, if their trade was elevated to the position of lawyers and doctors. So architecture has been voiced with this idea that there should be a kind of ethical probity attached to it in a way that no one who is a writer or a filmmaker 
has ever had to suffer this. But despite architecture being contaminated by the idea of ethics, it hasn't let, thank God, people have managed to get round this. Um, One thinks of um, John Nash and his very interesting relationship with the Prince of Wales. One thinks of Le Corbusier, who actually moved to Vichy. It didn't do him any good, didn't get any any commissions there, but, I mean, the will was there. One thinks of, say, of Fernand Puyon, who was a bagman for the FLN in Algeria, got sent down for fraud. When he came out um, of of prison, the FLN had stopped being terrorists and were now freedom fighters and then took over Algeria, where he went and worked. Um, One thinks of John Paulson, who brought down Reginald Maudling and caused um, various civil servants to get sent to prison. All of these architects were actually... The the architect who is a criminal among these people is, of course, Poulsen, whose work was absolutely gross, Uh, whereas Puyon um, and Le Corbusier and Nash were rather good. So these people didn't let any kind of ethical consideration get in the way of their work. And I think the same applies today. I mean, a successful architect is someone who is, has an analingual relationship with a, a Central Asian dictator. And that, that's, all, that's what's required of them. And I, so I think that the, it, it is a, an irrelevance. And I think also it's a fashion. Uh, one has heard about sustainability for God knows how long, and sustainability means absolutely nothing. Every, every architectural practice is sustainable, sustainabulous, sustaintastic. We're going to hear the same about ethics, ad vomitum, for God knows how many years. <laughs> Next, it's my great pleasure to introduce Anna Minton, reader in architecture at the University of East London, journalist and the author of Ground Control. I'm just going to turn it round a little bit, maybe come to a slightly more political conclusion, although I equally have a problem with the word uh, ethical as applied to architecture. But I want to move on directly from what Jonathan was talking about uh, in terms of, you know, why we, why, why we always actually heard this idea of whether or not architecture should be ethical. And I would hazard a guess, my guess would be, is because actually unlike novelists and, architect, uh, and, and artists, architects are seen as directly influential because their buildings and the spaces and places they create are there before us and we see them and respond to them. So I just want to give two quotes, uh, which, uh, two quotes by two seminal architects uh, which are about the influence or not uh, of the architect. So in 1922, Mies van der Rohe said... Architecture is the will of the age conceived in spatial terms. And in 1930, Frank Lloyd Wright said, Architecture is man's great sense of himself embodied in a world of his own making. So really, that's the great man theory of history, for those of you that ever studied history. Is history shaped by the will of great men? Or is history shaped by events, forces beyond an individual's control? And the answer is invariably somewhere in between the two. Uh, And I would say that the same uh, applies to uh, architects. So the the next question we, we, we ask after that is, you know, so, okay, let's say architects in some cases have some influence, 
not always. In fact, especially in a, in a, in, in a very constrained political uh, uh, socio-economic climate, I think they have far less influence. But if they do have influence, how should they choose to uh, exercise that? Should they exercise it ethically? And then I think you have to say, well, really, it's up to them and it's up to what their ethics and their values are because their ethics and their values may not be my ethics or your ethics. Um, you know, my ethics would be to build lots more social housing, to have a far less privatised and segregated city, but that would not be someone else's set of uh, ethics. Although I think the word ethics has got that sort of sort of liberalish kind of slant that, you know, people sort of like to think is sort of associated with something collective, something public, um, something sort of good. But, you know, I think there is, I think an architect can make a choice. They can choose to work for one of the big architect firms, become successful, as lots of people do, or they could uh, choose to work for a collective like Assemble, who we're going to hear from in a moment, or Ash, is, I think it's Architects for Social Housing. I mean, there are all sorts of choices that can be made. But from where I'm standing, what I'm really struck by is that the architects I meet are, as a group, really concerned about this issue. You know, you said when you write pieces about social conscience, ethics, they really attract a lot of attention. I mean, I'm not an architect. I've got no background in architecture. You know, I'm a journalist and writer who wrote about issues concerning space and place in the city. And out of all the disciplines who could have been interested in me, which includes uh, planners, uh, sociologists all sorts. It's architects who are the most interested and I think it's because I've tapped into this desire to question some of these aspects of the well, what people are calling the neoliberal city that we particularly inhabit here in the UK and just the final sort of set of thoughts I'll touch on before I stop is also this notion of the public interest and I think this, when we talk about ethical considerations, this often gets rolled over into another discussion of the public interest, which I think I find more helpful than ethical, because ethical could be, it means whatever you want it to mean, whoever you are. But when you talk about notions of the public interest, I think the triumph of the private sector in the UK uh, has actually led to an erosion of the public interest. And it's that ill-defined area around the public interest, around what constitutes public benefit and public good for our cities, that I think this idea of ethics in architecture is actually tapping into, and that's what's tapping into your interest here uh, tonight. Uh, I think ethics is problematic, but I think the idea of the public interest is, is really an important one that we need to revisit. So now we're going to turn to Jane Hall, who's one of the founding members of Assemble, for perhaps uh, more insight in ethical practice, as you said. I'm going to speak more from the perspective of being in practice. Um, Assemble is a collective formed of 18 people. Uh, we're five, five years old now, um, and we kind of take on projects and work to kind of together to in various different numbers to kind of realise them. So from the perspective of a majority of practitioners... Uh, kind of well-known paradox is that they believe that the most important feature of their work is the opportunity to exercise individual creativity, supposedly bestowed upon them through a long and professionally accredited training. However, most also believe that the conditions of the building industry, to which they are largely and often legally bound, 
restricts and inhibits this work. Uh, this inconclusive situation has led to an increased marginalization of the architect in practice as the value of their service has become greatly weakened. Um, in principle, the underlying values of professionalism should be to defend architects who in turn represent the public interest, as Anna has touched on, um, and the needs of those who, who might not kind of possess these very specific skills. While architects are seen by the public as the general managers of a supposedly new and improved built environment, where their work is highly visible and they themselves highly accountable, often the process by which an architectural project has been produced actually lies outside their responsibility and control. Um, Remcourt has characterised the architect as a surfer on the waves of societal, societal forces. Um, but this doesn't mean to absolve the architect, but ask, given these conditions, in what way is the undervaluing of architectural services an ethical concern? How is the architect supposed to acquire great, greater agency in this process? And how is it possible to practically defend an ethical position given all of these factors? Um, because of this, I find myself sort of personally both defending the profession while at the same time actively trying to subvert and counter its fragmentary nature and constraints. Um, I personally would like to see a kind of changed profession um, and the traditional one kind of replaced by a new form that predicates the embedded knowledge of the designer and develops a kind of intellectual program. Um, however, in practice, Assemble as a collective do not actually have a single or even a distinct ethical position. Um, it is, it's formed principally by a number of individuals who share the idea that we want to achieve a greater agency in the production of our own work so that we can choose projects that have some meaning and interest to us and kind of within that, the ability to choose and have an ethics or an ethical approach. Um, so some of our projects are social, some are critical, and some are like not based on anything in particular whatsoever. Um, and in this sense, our position is not ethical exclusively in terms of what work we do, how it's done, or whom we do it for, but attempts to address the marginalisation of architects, artists, and designers in the production process, kind of from, from start to finish. Um, we do this by working collectively, uh, looking at the transformative capacity kind of hidden within this existing chaos. Um, we've developed a fluid way of working through constant group conversation and full-scale te testing in our own studios. And in this way, we aim to be as informed as possible in any given situation by embracing and engaging with the idea that architecture, as it should be, is messy and subject to constant change. As Donald Sean has sort of defined it, um, we are kind of reflective in practice. Um, we refine our position and reflect on it um, through practice itself. And the one clear notion that has emerged from this approach to design for us is a greater recognition of the skill and products of labour in relation to the capital of architectural production. We share our workspace with a multitude of other designers and fabricators, and through them we seek a better understanding of how things are actually made and their true costs. This form is kind of organic solidarity strengthened by working in close proximity, um, which kind of allows us to, in a very sort of privileged way, retain an investigatory approach um, and being able to kind of define how and control how we want to practice. So now we're going to move to Francesco Sobregondi, Research Fellow, Forensic Architecture Project at Goldsmith. Thank you. Um, I'm also going to speak from the perspective of a practitioner, but... Uh, perhaps a kind of very specific practice of architecture. I work for this project of forensic architecture. For those who don't know it, it's a research consultancy undertaking 
spatial and media analysis for the investigation of human rights violation and uh, violation of international law. And uh, I'd like to start with a very brief note on the term ethics itself. If we refer to the history of philosophy, ethics is the critical practice of interrogating our moral values. And it is to be distinguished from morality, which has an inherently prescriptive and often dogmatic character. One could say that ethics is what labors our moral codes. So speaking about architectural ethics and not about architectural morality, as we are today, already presupposes a certain critical stance in architecture. It presupposes that architecture has the capacity to produce a discourse that will position itself in relation to given moral values, champion some, question others, challenge, etc. But not necessarily to prescribe what is right or what is wrong, not within the applied field of architecture, nor even less so more generally at the level of our society. So, in other words, I think we can practice a certain kind of architectural ethics without having to champion an architectural morality. Nonetheless, because of the inherently public nature of architecture, perhaps we can expect a practice of architectural ethics or a practice of ethics through architecture to not only put in question what is right or what is wrong, but also to actively play a role in opening up this question for public debate. And in order for a debate to take place, one requires a proposition, a provocation, or an intervention in the world. Um, so it's not a question of kind of remaining outside of the arena of dispute and adopting a uh, sort of neutral stance, but on the contrary, uh, intervening and, and, and taking one. And here's where perhaps bringing up the forensic architecture project makes sense, um, as uh, I think its approach to architecture is precisely kind of defined as, as, uh, as architecture as both critical discourse and intervention. Um, so I, maybe I need to say a few words about the project and the constituent terms of its title. Uh, as the founder and director of the project, Eyal Weizmann, has mentioned several times, the, the word forensic derives from the Latin forensis, which means pertaining to the forum. Only recently it narrowed down to designate the use of medicine and law in, in, in a court of justice, uh, medicine and science in a court of justice, excuse me. Uh, so with forensic architecture, what we set out to do is to develop a new kind of practice of forensics, uh, one that would use architecture as the science or the field of knowledge to be mobilized uh, to base arguments upon in uh, different forums, be they political forums or courts of justice. And how so? Well, uh, of course, with the ongoing urbanization, massive urbanization of our world, violence increasingly takes place in cities, in the explosive forms of wars, but also in less visible forms, such as the structural violence of capital accumulation, colonialism, or the slow violence of environmental transformations. And within this context, the, the built environment increasingly becomes not only the theater of violence, um, registering events such as blasts or full displacement in its material form, but also increasingly the very means by which violence takes place. An obvious example can be the uh, expansion of uh, illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories in which architecture itself is uh, a crime. But in this context, architecture, this time understood as a field of knowledge and a spatial sensibility, appeared to us as a valuable and, in fact, essential tool to 
analyze, understand, and eventually confront some of the most alarming instances of violence of our time. And while forensics is generally associated with state power policing its subject, in the cases we've been investigating using forensic architecture, the perpetrators were often states themselves. So one of the key conceptual and political moves in the project is this inversion of the forensic gaze, um, the development of a kind of citizen-driven forensics that uses architecture to hold accountable established structures of power for uh, their crimes. And this political move arguably also constitutes an ethical proposition, especially in the field of architecture. I can come back to it. Uh, so concrete examples, we went after the U.S. government for its killing of civilians through cover drone strikes operation, after NATO and its military ships in the Mediterranean for failing to assist migrant boats, migrants boats in distress, or after Israel for its use of indiscriminate firepower in the densely urban environment, uh, densely populated urban environments of Gaza over two different wars. All this through architectural uh, analysis. Because we realized that we could use architectural particular methods and, and skills uh, and means of representation in order to formulate an argument or a problem in new terms and to demand its discussion in public forum. Um, if I still have a couple, one minute, maybe I'll just give you a concrete example of what under quotation mark could be a successful case, but that will show some ethical problems as well around this. In 2012, we produced a report on the use of the incendiary white phosphorus munition in the urban environment, um, which produces horrific burns and injuries on whoever gets hit. Uh, we've used footage of its use by uh, the Israeli army in Gaza and by uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, army in Fallujah to model the behavior of the weapon in a reconstructed 3D environment and to quantify its effects in, um, in terms of the number of people that would be affected. Uh, we were able to submit this report in the Israeli Supreme Court and uh, obtain through a petition a, a ban of the uh, white phosphorus munition from the arsenal of the Israeli army. And it was a collective effort, but uh, it, arguably th this report was also instrumental in obtaining this uh, conclusion. Uh, now, was this right? Is it a good thing? Well, following the ban of white phosphorus, it hasn't been used in the very recent well, 2014 war in Gaza, Operation Protective Edge. Uh, but this did not prevent this war to be the most deadly in terms of civilian death toll of the past uh, three wars in, in the last six years, right? So, um, and, and to a certain extent, it also contributes to legitimize the, the, the kind of uh, uh, conformity to international law of the Israeli army in this case. Uh, so, you know, to kind of refer back to the introductory distinction between ethics and morality, uh, here we can see how once embedded in, in the very complex context in which uh, uh, practice of architecture is always uh, situated, it's, it's what seems like uh, uh, essential is to, to keep this questioning alive and as much as possible to use uh, the public nature of architecture or whatever form this practice takes to make this uh, uh, debate uh, public and open and uh, keeping this question uh, addressed to wider audiences. Perhaps to, to finish, one of the main contributions, I would say, of this project is to kind of, of the forensic architecture project, is to challenge the assumed lack of agency of the architect uh, and its um, 
kind of very small margin of maneuver that we are expected to accept and operate within without challenging it itself. I think what, through its failures and its successes, uh, the project shows is that there is a ground for architects to invent ways of practicing their discipline and their profession in ways that can become extremely relevant to the increasingly spatial problems that our globalized world uh, has to face. And uh, that, yes, that in a certain, to a certain extent, we don't have to simply consider uh, the field within which uh, we're expected to operate it as delimited. And I think one uh, aspect of architectural ethics is precisely to kind of challenge where we're supposed to sit, from which position we're supposed to kind of operate, and what kind of uh, ground we uh, can claim. I want to pick up on this comment about um, building in the public interest or acting in the public interest. Does the panel think that architects have any agency to act in the public interest, or are they merely service providers to, to a client um, providing a design service for a predetermined outcome? Well, I'm public can often be your client, um, and there are many ways to, to, to deliver deliver projects. Um, and kind of, I suppose, public engagement has become a kind of bit of a sort of dirty word now. People kind of there's a lot of work to try and create more meaningful ways to kind of value the public's interest. I mean, I'm really interested in this area and have kind of traced the sort of. Well, I've looked at the high point of where I think the public interest sort of really was at its high point in the UK at any rate. It was in the immediate post-war period with the post-war planning act, welfare state. Legislation in the public interest was actually enshrined. That phrase, public interest, was in our legislation. And that phrase has been taken out, actually, uh, over the years. And there have been various legislative debates in different societies around the world whether or not the terminology of the public interest should be in legislation, in planning legislation in particular. It's been particularly controversial in America where the idea of the public benefit was removed from planning legislation and replaced with economic benefit with regard to development contentious development decisions and it caused a massive public outcry it was a supreme court case protesters camped on the white house lawn uh, books were written about it it led news bulletins it was massive and actually a lot of american states revoked that legislation and inserted the public interest back into their legislation and over here it's just come out of our planning legislation and no one's really noticed so i think to take it back to the opening question. The architect can't really do much if the framework isn't there. And, you know, sort of sort of concepts like public engagement are completely worthless and meaningless because they are literally meaningless. You know, local authorities and architects and developers have to consult with the public, so they do, but those consultations are meaningless. Unless you have a meaningful idea of what the public interest is, it's not going to be met. And that's something that I think we, it's really important that we have a proper debate about. And if you look at continental Europe, their idea of the public interest and the public benefit is far more healthy uh, than, than ours is. You know, basically, we followed this very Atlanticist model, where America, notwithstanding, actually is more democratic in many respects, actually, than, 
than, than, than we are. But we really need to do a lot to try and sort of revive that because at its root, it's a democratic issue. So that's what we're talking about, really. We're talking about the health of our democracy as much as anything else. Jonathan Francesco said that architecture can be a crime, such as the building of illegal, illegal settlements in Gaza. I think that's absolute nonsense. I think I, I, this is a new and interesting way of, of having a go at Israel, um, which, you know, everyone, you know, you could get brownie points for uh, dumping on it. Is, Israel is our ally, and it's the front line, um, and that shouldn't be forgotten. And I'm, I'm absolutely unequivocally pro-Israel. Um, you know, you're living in a country which has been bombarded by... Um, Palestinians night after night. Um, anyway, um, it's, it's, it's not a crime. Um, the public interest is an interesting thing. I mean, I, I'm old enough to have lived through the years of the so-called cross-party consensus when a lot more social housing was actually built by the Conservatives under um, Churchill... Um, Eden and Macmillan than it was was by by Labour, but that's just you know ch the chance of who, who'd won those elections. But there was that consensus, and and the stuff was built. But um, <laughs> it went with, hand in hand with um, rationing, with extreme shortages, um, with a quality of life which very few people today would would actually accept. And this was largely down to the kind of Attlee tyranny and Crips, uh, grotesque man, um, then, then, then it was what one reads about now, written in the endless popular histories of post-war Britain, is um, a kind of um, whitewashed version of, of what was going on. I mean, I've, I've, I've written about this before, but, uh, but the, you know, when, when my grandmother died in 1962, she lived in a house with no bathroom and an outside toilet, and that was the lot of very many people at that time. And sure, there was a kind of amelioration, but it, it was, and it, it has been hugely misrepresented. Um, and it's quite interesting that the 10 years between um, Nairn's outrage and his um, article that uh, stating that British architecture is just not good enough was occasioned by the fact that when he wrote Outrage in 1955, there was virtually nothing being built. That there were building licenses, you 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 know, and terrible shortages. And he was writing about an expectation of what was going to happen, and it didn't didn't happen. I mean, to 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 represented as some kind of golden age is, I think, um, as wrong as representing anything as a golden age. You, there aren't any golden ages. There's just, they're just sort of EPNS ages. I, I didn't represent it as a golden age. No, but I mean, you seem to think it was, it was better than it was. It, it, it wasn't that great. I, no, I was just talking about the fluctuating fortunes of the public interest as uh, pertains to its place in legislation. Francesca, I wanted yeah. to ask you, um, if you do, and I, I'll let you respond as well, but if you, if you 
do argue that this would be a crime, the building of the illegal settlements on the part of architect or architecture is complicit in this crime. Would you argue that under some code of, code of ethics that an architect could be stripped of, its, of their title should they be complicit in, in a building like that? Um, I'll try to respond. Okay. So, uh, first of all, just to kind of specify the, what I meant uh, by uh, presenting the Israeli settlements, uh, illegal settlements in the West Bank as uh, a situation in which architecture itself is a crime is, is a very simple fact. It's simply that by the standards of international law, the expansion of, illegal, of these settlements is illegal. So if we take international law that is still uh, today uh, also in order of our um, uh, complex geopolitical powers as a reference, this is a crime. And it's not me that argues it. It's just a fact, if you will. Uh, now, uh, I think it's an interesting, I mean, I absolutely don't want to enter into an Israeli-Palestinian uh, debate. I think the very fact of presenting yourself as pro means also a kind of uh, a reductive understanding of the complexity it's of this question. But the, the, here it's, it's, uh, it's more about how this situation, these, uh, uh, these uh, settlements, shows also an example by which we can perceive how architecture can be embedded into a force field, into a complexity of, of agencies and, and, and political forces, that legal and political forces, that go much beyond the intention of the architect. The crime is not about necessarily the architect himself or herself uh, designing a settlement, but the form that this particular settlement, this particular house on a hilltop in the West Bank will have, the agency that will have is... Uh, enormous and can be seen as a form of violence and as well as a crime according to certain standards of law. And I think where it is, what we're interested in with also the Forensic Architecture Project, I think, or at least myself within this project, is to look at these extreme conflict zones, front lines, uh, in which architecture and the built environment is embedded to also, uh, you know, once they are so radically uh, Exposed in certain situations, they allow to understand it better in more like the, in the diffuse forms in which perhaps they appear in our Western context. And without making an analogy, I believe that the form of kind of encroachment of neoliberal developments in certain kind of also underprivileged part of our city can be seen as another situation in which architecture itself carries a form of violence, right? And be it a crime or not, I don't know. But it's something that I believe architects and, and the, you know, um, people operating in the architecture field increasingly need to be aware of and to engage with, at least. What is the agency of the built form beyond the intention or the response to the client and, you know, these kind of frameworks of, of, of production of space, right? Did I answer? <laughs> Jane, I wanted to ask you about some of the considerations that you guys make. You talked about working as a collective. You weigh whether you'll take on a job or at different points of the job when these issues arise. What are some of the things that you're looking out for or the issues that arise during that discussion? Um, well, I think that's kind of the main problem of asking whether an architect is ethical or not because they don't know until they're in the middle of a project and you can't necessarily you know, kind of plan for for something that comes along that kind of questions what you previously thought your stance would be be on the topic and and I don't think we as a practice are particularly kind of ethical 
um, or consider ourselves to be um, any, in any way ethical. I, perhaps it kind of comes from the perception that a lot of our projects kind of try to kind of actively engage communities in a different way and therefore this somehow follows on as being in some way kind of ethical but it's not about doing it it's about how you do it and so kind of coming back to this idea that maybe the architect hasn't got any responsibility and there are forces greater than themselves is is not in, entirely true and in and as we've tried to kind of try in a lot of our projects is to to push and test how far up the food chain can we get so that we have more agency um, and that's often by working you know really closely with clients and kind of challenging what they think they can get out of the project but I thought it was quite interesting this thing that you just said about you know should architects lose their professional license and um, you know most of the architecture kind of around the world is not created by architects we are not qualified as architects yet you kind of said that architects are reading these articles about you know that have more of a social concern so there is this kind of considerable number of people who who are in a position to somehow be part of the conversation about producing a built environment who are actively showing an interest in this topic and we're just like this kind of huge untapped resource um, who are also trained and could be, you know, people talk about complicity in a kind of bad way, but we could also be complicit in in kind of affecting uh, the kind of forces that create architecture as well. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.